Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we'll be talking to current and former Pomona faculty about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes, as we all shelter in place. Today, we're talking with Associate Professor of Chemistry, Jane Liu, a scholar whose research lies in chemical biology, and more specifically, in the field of cholera. Welcome, Jane. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. So how are you adjusting to uh, this new life uh, during, during the public health crisis? I, I feel really fortunate, actually. Um, I mean, everyone's adjusting a lot. But, um, for example, uh, it's just my husband and me. We don't have kids. So, I mean, kids are lovely. But <laughs> this time, it, it's, I, I fully recognize and admire the additional challenges that would bring up. Um, we both, my husband and I are able to work from home or remotely very easily. We're still employed. So we feel very fortunate for that. We actually have a lot of space in our home. So we've been able to set up a home gym to keep us active. So a lot is going just fine for us. Um, and so I'm reading a lot and zooming a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, I do really like getting emails from students, getting to Zoom with students, um, Zooming with friends, Zooming with family. So that's been helpful also. That's great. That's great that you're staying safe and healthy and fit. <laughs> and connected. And connected. Trying. Trying to check that's... all of those off. <laughs> That's really important right now. Jane, um, can you tell us a little bit about your early years? Um, did you always gravitate towards science or what were your your early plans, let's say? Yeah. And so um, my father and mother are both scientifically inclined. Um, my mother is a pharmacist and um, had an advanced degree in pharmacy. And my father has a PhD in chemistry. And then also when I was in elementary school, he went back to school and got his MD as well. And so I don't know how much of it was I was inclined towards science. It just, I might have been, but I also was just sort of surrounded by science. Um, (laughs) You know, weekend afternoons often had me just going with my dad to his lab just because I I had to be somewhere. <laughs> and if I was going to be with him, that meant in his lab. That was a child care. That was, that was the child care, yes. <laughs> and so um, I remember, I mean, I... I, you hear those stories about people being so curious and it's not, I don't really think I was like one of those kids. It's not like I was asking, what's that? What's that? What's that? Um, I don't know if people who haven't necessarily been a lab much, but a lot of molecular biology labs are full of these very colorful um, tapes, like, like, like scotch tape, except like masking tape, except they're like every color of the rainbow. And I actually honestly remember that's what I was really gravitated towards, playing with the colored tape and like making <laughs> designs <laughs> and pictures, um, crafting with the colored tape. And so that was my introduction to the lab. But in the classroom, I did enjoy my science classes. Um, I did enjoy science projects, science fairs, and things like that. Um, I 
seem to do well in those classes. So going into college, I definitely was thinking I would probably be majoring in some sort of science class, but I really enjoyed writing also and literature and um, design. I was on like the yearbook staff in high school. So I liked a lot of other things which made me gravitate towards a more liberal arts education, even though back then I didn't know what a liberal arts education was. I just had this general idea that it would allow me to do more than just science. So I understand that um, you started college, you you had plans to do pre-med, is that right? I and did. So um, uh, how did uh, those plans change? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I went into college thinking I was interested in science and, um, again, not really knowing much about other opportunities. Cause like my own example from my home of a scientist was someone who actually was a PhD and an MD. And so in my mind, like there was just those two options. And, um, I wasn't yet really sure what the PhD part involved. And so the MD was the most concrete, right? And then I also was a big fan of like ER, um, you know, George Clooney <laughs> and Anthony Edwards. So like, you know, it seemed very concrete what you would do with an MD. You go and you'd work with George Clooney. And so, you know, why not do that? <laughs> so that's what I went into college thinking that I was going to be pre-med. Um, of all the sciences, I seemed to generally enjoy my biology classes the most in high school. So that was pretty set, a uh, bio major and uh, go on and be an MD. But um, a lot of things kind of quickly and some not so quickly started to shift. Um, I didn't actually end up enjoying my biology classes all that much. Uh, there was a lot of different reasons for that. But um, what I did end up really enjoying was my chemistry classes. And because I was pre-med, I was taking all the chemistry classes. I took general chemistry. I went on into organic chemistry and biochemistry. And I actually, I loved organic chemistry. Um, my professor was amazing and I just loved the subject. And so when I was done with my pre-med requirements, I still wanted to take more chemistry. And so I shifted to becoming a chemistry major. And then at that point though, you know, you could be a chemistry major and still be pre-med, I thought. But there's always those checklists. Like if you're going to be pre-med, you should, for example, you should volunteer um, at a hospital or at least get some sort of clinical experience. So I started doing that my second year of college. Um, I would go into, um, I was at Swarthmore. So I would get, take the train and go into Philadelphia to the UPenn hospital. And they had me doing some scut work, like autoclaving things like sterilizing equipment, et cetera. But then if you were done with that and if a surgery was about to start up, you'd be allowed to actually go. We were actually like allowed in the room. That seems weird these days. <laughs> I was like in the room with the patient and the doctors. And I, as soon as they would start cutting, I would start to feel really faint. Mm. And uh. the first couple times, like maybe there just wasn't a whole lot, like there wasn't a whole lot of blood or I just didn't watch too much, but I just, I didn't know what it was. I just thought it was a fluke until like the time I actually just fainted. 
I just like one minute I was standing up and the next minute, like, I don't know, but I was on the ground and my elbow really hurt. Cause like I had whacked it really hard against like some metal tray. And I was like, oh my gosh, blood causes me to faint. <laughs> so, <laughs> a little bit of a problem. <laughs> so I started like reconsidering what this meant. Um, and then, so again, the checklists, right? I didn't completely rule out med school at that point, but although probably I should have, but then the <laughs> next thing on the checklist, right? You were supposed to take the MCATs. That was like a big thing. And I knew I was supposed to take it and I knew I was supposed to take it. And I should probably study for it. And I just could not, it was like this, I physically could not pick up like the study book I had purchased and I just couldn't start anytime I would need to start studying. I knew I needed to start studying. I would find 10,000 other things I should do instead. Um, and so kind of all of those things came together and just made me feel like, you know, if I really wanted it, I don't think, um, I would find a way to not faint at the sight of blood. And I'd find a way to study for the MCAS. Like I actually have met students who, they also get queasy at the side of blood. So they just started donating their blood and they would force themselves to watch themselves donating blood. And I can't, to this day, I can't do that. I have to look away <laughs> when I have to give blood. And, um, and I've seen students who, you know, they don't want to study for the MCAT, but they do. At the end of the day, they buckle down and they devote hours upon hours to study. And I'm, I look at them now, I'm like, yeah, I didn't have that. And so... <laughs> I, I, I made the right decision. I chose not to pursue pre-med, not go into the MD route. Um, as I mentioned, I was discovering I really did enjoy chemistry. That led to more chemistry classes that led me getting into a chemistry research lab when I was in college and um, learned that I really loved that. Started TAing for courses, learned I really enjoyed teaching. So. Um, I started finding a lot of these other things that I really enjoyed, which led me to decide I wanted to try to be a professor. That leads us perfectly into our next question. Um, one, one of your research areas is vibrio cholerae, mm -hmm. the bacterium that causes cholera. How did you get started into, so you said you, you started TAing and then you kind of that led you into this, um, your academic beginning of, of in chemistry. Yeah. But how did you start um, studying cholerae and why is it important to study this disease? Sure. So, um, well, I'll start with the why is it important to study. And cholerae, it causes cholera disease, which inflicts millions around the world each year. And um, there's also a lot of, lot of other diseases that are caused by similar bacteria. So Vibrio cholerae is actually really closely similar to E. coli. And you've probably heard a lot about E. coli related to various food poisoning um, type of scares that have come up over the past few years. It's also highly related to salmonella. All of these bacteria, they are actually really, really similar to each other. You can think about them as close cousins. So studying any one of them could actually help us understand how to perhaps combat the diseases that each individual bacterium inflicts, but then also helps us understand pathogenesis, disease caused by bacteria more generally. And what we learn about cholera could help us combat E. coli, it could help us combat salmonella, it could help us combat the next new disease that we don't even know about yet, which is very timely given COVID, et cetera, right? New things are going to always be popping up. So the better we understand the existing pathogens we have right now, 
the better we are in place to combat future pathogens. So um, yeah. tell us a little bit about, you know, what you've discovered so far and yeah. what, and the, the puzzles you're still hoping to solve. Absolutely. So um, what I'm really interested in is how these bacteria turn on the genes that they need to survive. So the bacteria, their life cycle is that they, in, they, we swallow them when we eat contaminated food or water. They attach onto our small intestine, the outside lining of our small intestine, and then they secrete a toxin. And that causes then profuse watery diarrhea that releases those bacteria back out into the environment. And in places with poor sanitation, that could just then release the bacteria back into drinking water sources, et cetera. And if you think about this, you think then that the bacteria have two homes, if you'll think about it like that. Uh, they have a home inside us. They live there briefly, but very happily. They're able to multiply and they're able to thrive. And then they're also able to live in these waterways, like ponds and estuaries. And they're actually able to thrive there as well. They're able to live there for long periods of time, survive for long periods of time until the next unsuspecting person comes along and drinks out of that pond. So what I've been focused on is, okay, well, how do the bacteria know where they are and are able to then adapt accordingly? Because if we can figure out that adaptation process, then maybe we could stop them from adapting or figure out how to make it so that they aren't as able to thrive or survive in one environment versus the other. So we've focused a lot, just like we need to eat in order to survive, the bacteria also need to eat in order to survive. So we've been trying to focus on what is it that they are quote eating? What kind of sugars, like you hear a lot about us in taking in like glucose and fructose, for example, the bacteria also can use glucose and fructose. We've been trying to figure out how do they use those different carbon sources and how do those signal them to know like, okay, um, what other genes are they turning on that might help them survive in these environments? In particular, we've been looking, um, we have found some new players in the survival processes. Um, I've found some things called regulatory RNAs that seem to help the signal to the bacteria whether or not certain sugars are around. And we've spent a lot, many, many years trying to figure out how those regulatory RNAs signal, like how do they actually indicate to the bacterium, hey, you are now in the presence of this carbon source. Um, so that took us um, a lot of time to figure out, but it was a lot of fun to do it. And we're now moving on to additional proteins that have been previously identified, but no one knew exactly what they were doing. And so we're trying to figure out what those proteins are doing and how, again, they're helping to signal to bacteria where they are and what they need to do in order to survive there. Jane, you've told us in the, uh, previously that most researchers in the cholera field have their training in microbiology. Mm -hmm. How are you an outlier with your background in chemistry? Yeah, so um, I feel like my path towards cholera was, was a very meandering path. I went into graduate school thinking I was going to do very uh, much what's called like hardcore organic synthesis. I was gonna be a real chemist making, um, making organic molecules. But then um, this is what I feel like the legacy of the liberal arts a bit, because when I got to graduate school, you know, there's like five, six years ahead of you. I thought, well, maybe before I dive into 
what I will be doing for the rest of my life. Maybe I should just try something else out, right? Again, for that breadth. And so I um, decided to try a more biological project in the lab I was joining. And so that was involving E. coli. And it involves studying different like RNAs and different proteins in the E. coli. And then I just got so interested in those questions I was asking that I never stopped. And so I never went back to being an organic synthetic chemist. And then I was like, okay, so now after my graduate degree was obtained, I said, okay, now what? I was like, well, you learned all of this microbiology, uh, how to work with E. coli, kind of on your own. Wouldn't it be nice to actually try to be more formally trained? So I thought maybe I should do a postdoc in an actual microbiology lab. So I joined a cholera lab at uh, Tufts Medical School. And so that's where cholera came in. Um, it was partly because I wanted to get this more formal microbiology training, but uh, also because at that point, I was already starting to think I wanted to be at a small college. And so I wanted an organism that to work with that I felt would be um, compatible with undergraduates. And what I mean by that is could grow really fast <laughs> because undergraduates, um, you don't get them as long as a graduate student. And they're usually you know, focused on not just working in your lab, they're also taking all their classes, working on all their extracurriculars. So I wanted something that would work really well in an undergraduate setting. So cholera definitely fits that. So that's where cholera came in. And I would say that there's a lot about microbiology that I still, even with those couple of years of more formal training at Tufts, I'd say there's still a lot that I'm learning each day. But I think my chemical training and just my scientific training overall has led me to think about different ways to attack problems, um, using more traditional analytical chemistry techniques and one additional thing I would say is the constant throughout all of my time, all of my formal training has been, I haven't shied away from learning something new, right? Like I said, oh, I want to try some biology. And I did, and I ended up really loving it. And then I said, oh, I want to try some Vibrio cholerae now. And I did, and I ended up really loving it. So when there is a scientific problem now, I'm not afraid to just say, okay, well, what's a different way we could address this? I know how other people have addressed this kind of problem in the past, but is there a different way? And so I don't mind and actually really enjoy drawing upon literature outside of the direct field of microbiology, um, going to more chemical analytical techniques, using mass spectrometry, for example, has been something I've been getting much more interested in. Um, I've been actually trying to learn a little bit more about bioinformatics on my own. I mean, that part is very tied in with microbiology, but trying to learn things that have been not part of my formal training, I keep trying to learn and I keep trying to then apply what I learn to the stuff that I do. Yeah, that, that sort of interdisciplinary aspect to your work interests me. Um, you've said, you know, that you think a lot like a chemist, but the stories you tell are very biological. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Sure. So I, t I say this a lot to like my, my chemistry students, my biochemistry students in particular, um, that the difference between a chemist and a biologist is that the chemist actually really wants to know at the molecular level. Like, is that a carbon there? Is that an oxygen there? Whereas those 
details a biologist may not necessarily care about. So even when I'm reading a biology paper, I'm still in the margins drawing out chemical structures. And so that's what I sort of mean when I say like, I think like a chemist, because I, I still recognize that that's really important at the end of the day. It might not be super relevant or critical to understand the big picture ideas, but to me, it's still fascinating that, you know, it does matter if that's a carbon. It does matter if that's an oxygen. And um, trying to tie that then into the bigger picture. So I'm still thinking at a very molecular level, even when the stories I tell are presented at a much broader, higher level. Jane, last year you received a grant from the National Institutes of Health to mm -hmm. support um, your color research. Can you tell us more about that? What it helped you, uh, what that grant helped you with? Absolutely. Um, so all of these things that I say I like to do, none of it comes cheap. <laughs> so... Um, it, the, all of the exciting things that we like to do these, these days, um, where you can characterize not just one protein, but all the proteins in a cell, or not just identify one um, RNA, but all the RNAs in a cell and actually count them and know exactly how many there are in each cell. All of that is expensive to do. Uh, working with bacteria is not actually that expensive, but some of the more fancy analyses you could do these days do require um, a substantial investment in terms of finance. So um, what the grant allows me to do is to be able to design the experiments I want to and not, be, not to do the experiments because I have to do them that way. So it allows us to think big and allows us to, I mean, and thinking big does not necessarily mean always expensive. It just could mean like for this particular experiment, it might make sense to just do a very simple and not very expensive um, assay. But for another one, maybe the best thing is to do a project that's going to cost $10,000 to do, to just get to the answer. Maybe we need to do that. So the funding that I've been very, very fortunate. Um, the NIH has consistently funded me during my um, career, my independent career. And it just allows me to not have to worry about being able to expose my students to the type of research that I wanna be doing, but also that I feel like they will be exposed to once they go on to graduate school themselves. So they're familiar already with a lot of the techniques that are being used around the globe. Uh, let's talk about your student researchers. I know you're a strong believer in, in the importance of, of, of research experience for, mm -hmm. for undergrads. Um, Absolutely. I, I know this is something professors love to do. So tell us about your students and, you know, the work yeah. they do. So my students are just, they really are just amazing. And what they do is they do everything. Um, I, I sit in my office and I read papers and I think about things, but uh, like, oh, what's the next question we might want to ask? Oh, how might we ask that? What's the experiment we want to do? And then I make sure we have the funding to do it. But they're actually the ones who are, you might say, in the trenches. Like they're actually in the lab. They're carrying out all of the experiments and they are analyzing the data and proposing what they think would be the next step, right? Whether it's sometimes, it just might be them saying, you know what, this data point looked a little bit off. I'd never gotten that result before. I wanna repeat it one more time. 
And I'm like, that's great. Um, they're being really careful and cautious. It could be that they, you, for some of my students who've been with me for multiple years, usually by their third or fourth year in the lab, they know their projects better than I do because they're thinking about them constantly. Whereas I'm kind of diffusely thinking about five different projects, but they're really concentrating on one particular project. So usually they're the ones completely driving the process by the time that they're seniors. Um, I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to see former students at scientific meetings, not, not as my students anymore, but actually as peers. And that has just been delightful. Um, a couple of years ago, I was at a meeting in Spain and a former student was, um, was also at that meeting. Um, it was a very small specialized meeting. So the likelihood of us both being there was um, not high, but um, we, we knew, we had warned each other that we would both be there. We had figured that out. Um, but there was just something really special about sharing tapas and wine <laughs> in Spain with a former student, right? Mm -hmm. um, talking about science, but then just also catching up on each other's lives. Uh, last summer, I was at a microbiology meeting in Wisconsin. It's an annual meeting. But again, um, I met up with a, one of my first students. He was there. And um, I actually had not anticipated that. So it was a pleasant surprise. And it was just great seeing him and catching up with him. So um, my students, they go on and they do all sorts of things. A lot go on to graduate school, some go on to medical school, some go on and start companies and some go on and be teachers. So uh, I, they, they're all just fantastic and they're what makes this job just always so exciting and so different each and every day. Jane, do you have, um, tell us a little bit about um, the background of your the students in your lab uh, do they, are they all science majors mm. um, you've you've said that uh, you've told us a little bit about what they go on to do yeah um, what are their kind of current or sure. when they're your students what are their majors yeah. are they science only or what does what does that look like yeah so um, I would say the majority of the students in my lab are going to be either chemistry and molecular biology majors they weren't necessarily like students will join my lab anywhere from their first year at Pomona and like some some join that early, some wait until they're rising seniors. So it's a wide range. Obviously, the ones who join early, they may not have a major yet. Um, they tend to incline toward molecular biology and chemistry. In terms of seniors, it's almost exclusively um, molecular biology or chemistry majors. However, over the past um, seven years, I have had one art major, um, and she worked in my lab throughout her junior and senior year and the summer in between. Uh, she was pre-med, so she had done all the science courses, but she just also loved art. And so she was an art major, but uh, she's now going to medical school. And, but she was, she was great in a lab. Her, her notebook, her lab notebook was beautiful because she would draw <laughs> a lot of like um, <laughs> schematics and illustrations of like what she actually was doing in the lab. So I love looking at that notebook from time to time. Um, currently, I have a gender women's studies student also in the lab. Similar story. Um, she's pre-med, so she's taking all science classes that the chemistry and molecular biology students often take in their first couple years, but she also just is really interested in women's issues, and so she's a gender and women's studies as well, and she's been fantastic in the lab too. 
So for some of our readers, the word cholera may sound kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, it's not a biohazard lab <laughs> at Pomona level, whatever. Um, how do you work safely with a pathogen like Vibrio cholerae in a, in a normal so lab? So we actually, we are biosafety level two. You are two, um, okay. And um, we... But even though we are biosafety level two, what I've always done is I work with what's called an attenuated strain. So basically it's a sickly strain of Vibrio, but only sickly in the sense that it can't make the toxin, the toxin that causes the actual diarrhea, um, it can't make that. And so even if you were to ingest like a whole liter of these bacteria, <laughs> that would be so gross, but you wouldn't get sick, as yeah. is the po- or at least not the cholera sick um, right. from doing so. And, Might throw up, but not because of the cholera. Yeah. Yes. So, um, so that's that's the main safety issue or safety uh, protocol that I have in place is just making sure that what we start with already is not going to actually cause cholera disease. But then we're also just really careful about um, anything that is bacteria-based or touches bacteria, we always sterilize. And I mean, this this isn't even necessarily um, harmful bacteria. Like we work with non-harmful E. coli, but we treat it just as if it was like the most harmful um, pathogen out there. We sterilize everything, we're constantly bleaching or using ethanol to wipe down surfaces. And we sterilize all the waste before it actually leaves our lab. So part of this actually is to train the students. Like we don't have to be doing all of this. Like if even if we didn't take all of these precautions, I'm pretty sure that the students would be still completely safe. But part of what I think I'm doing here is not just teaching my students good experimental protocols, proper techniques of like setting up an experiment and analyzing data, but also just how to keep themselves safe. So what I'm teaching them theoretically is supposed to help them, even if they were to start working with like a biosafety level three or four pathogen down the road, or if they did go to a biosafety level two lab, but it wasn't an attenuated version of cholera, if it was like the real thing, they would be prepared to work safely with those pathogens without really having to relearn things. Jane, you briefly mentioned this earlier, but I wanted to um, get a little bit more on this. Um, why did you choose to teach at a liberal arts college instead of a larger university where you might yeah. be able to spend more time on, on the lab and yeah. on your research? So um, a couple of different things. One is I really, I really like teaching a lot. Um, I like the getting, I, I, I like learning a ton. So, and I learned that the best way to learn is to teach. And so I just felt like if I want to keep learning and I want to keep learning things well, I should be teaching. So teaching is really important to me, like, like actual classroom teaching. Um, I also know that I could, as an individual, be doing research and making great discoveries and that would be lovely. But to me, it's incredibly rewarding to be training a whole group of students to then go on. And then I feel like any contributions I could be making to the scientific field are just super amplified by kind of creating this army of students who are gonna go out there and make their own contributions. So both of those things have, are some of the primary reasons that I'm at a small liberal arts college. 
Um, I just, I love this environment also that everyone's here to be learning and that's faculty and students alike. And so when I was um, at Swarthmore, my uh, research advisor, he was learning Spanish during my entire four years there. So he actually was sitting and he was auditing Spanish class. And you know, the language classes here, I mean, they're intense, right? They don't meet just like twice or three times a week. They meet every single day and they have language labs and things like that. And so he was doing all of that. He was going five days a week, but this is what he wanted to be doing. He wanted to be learning Spanish. And I just thought that was really uh, just so cool that you could just keep learning and you could just be, you could just keep going to college forever. And that's what I wanted to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wanted to be at a college um, where I could be learning forever, uh, either through just teaching courses, um, interacting with students in my research lab, or even auditing courses. So for example, this semester, I was um, actually auditing a course from one of my biology colleagues, um, his genomics and transcriptomics course. And that's where I was learning the bioinformatics, learning how to analyze uh, sequencing data. I was sitting in on his class. I, I will admit the COVID um, situation has me not as engaged as I was, but I was loving it. I was learning new things. And um, is that Daniel Martinez's yes, class? Yes, yes. It's just a, such a fantastic class. I, I will get back on it, I promise. <laughs> this, will, this will keep me honest, too. We won't tell him. <laughs> so... Um, Jane, you, even before uh, coronavirus and this sort of enforced distance learning that we're, we're going through, um, you were known for running an interactive classroom. Mm. Um, can you tell us why you're, you found that helpful? Yeah. Um, so part of it's that um, I actually, it's hard for me to think about standing in front of a class and just talking for 50 to 75 minutes. Um, I just have never been able to think about that. I wouldn't want to listen to me for that long. <laughs> so I just, I can't imagine anyone wanting to do that. And um, so I, I was always open to the idea of like, well, what are some other modes of teaching? And when I was a postdoc, I actually was part of a program, training program that helped postdocs not only be good researchers, but also excellent teachers. So I attended a lot of teaching workshops and I was learning a lot about this thing called active learning. And this idea where maybe you sort of flip it and instead of the faculty member being the center of the classroom, the students become sort of the centers of the classroom. They're actually leading the conversation that's going on. And there's a lot of different models. Uh, chemistry in particular has a model um, that's called process-oriented guided inquiry learning, POGL. And the process is where you the instructor really does very little. Um, the instructor provides the students with uh, guided guided worksheets and the students are supposed to work on that throughout the entire class period. And the faculty member facilitates. So usually instead of being called like the instructor, you usually think about the faculty member now as a facilitator. The students are supposed to be working through the material on their own and through this way, because they're actually working on problems and not just listening, the idea is that that's supposed to help ingrain and help can make connections um, more, more rapidly or at least more long 
outstanding connections and they're supposed to learn better. So there's a lot of people who study this and they have data to support that it can be a more effective way of teaching. Um, I just started doing it because it seemed potentially fun. <laughs> It, it was it was both potentially fun because like again I couldn't imagine just talking for seventy five minutes. Um, it was also a little daunting. Um, like most of my colleagues, I would assume um, I'm a bit of a control freak, right? And so when you are lecturing for seventy five minutes, you have full control, right? You can have every single minute planned out. But when you just give it over to the students anything could happen. <laughs> anything could happen. Um, so I was nervous, but I also really thought that if it went well, that it could be a lot of fun, right? No two class periods would be the same. No two semesters would be the same. I teach biochemistry here at Pomona. We teach that every semester. So sometimes I'm teaching it like three semesters in a row. That's a lot of biochemistry, but no two semesters are the same because, because it's so student-centered, each class period, each semester is very different. So um, I've really enjoyed that. Um, it keeps things interesting for me. It's sometimes an adjustment for the students because they're not used to it, but um, they are highly adaptable as, as the online learning is teaching us. <laughs> Our students are highly adaptable. So tell us more about this teaching online. Um, uh. how, do, do you, how, do you, how do you adjust to it and yeah. how do you keep it? Um, how do you keep your students engaged and, and making still making your classes interactive? Yeah, so um, I think partly because I was not just lecturing for 75 minutes, um, I, I feel like this transition ha has worked okay for me. So what I've done is pretty much the 75 minutes we would have been spending in class with them working on activities, we still are doing that. Um, the Zoom... Uh, Breakout, breakout room function has been working really well for me because in my classroom, they the students would have been split into five teams of four anyways. And so online in Zoom, they can still be broken up into five teams of four each. And then I'm able to go and circulate through each breakout room and check in with them. Um, so it's not perfect. I mean, there have been connectivity issues with some of the students, et cetera. But, and there's just nothing that can really replace me being able to like communicate with all 20 and be able to see like all 20 faces and just know that we're all on the same page. But it hasn't been, um, I mean, we're still able to go through the activities and we're still getting through a lot of the material. Granted, I mean, it's been one week. We will see <laughs> how this week goes. <laughs> but last week, I was so impressed by my students. Um, when I was going through the breakout rooms, they were they were actively working and they were engaged. They were asking me great questions. Um, they were being really generous. Like when there was technological issues, um, they they were frustrated, but they acknowledged, you know, I'm sure we'll figure this out once we have more experience. Like they just were so positive about it all. Um, I was really impressed. Jane, is there lab as part of your mm. classes? How is how is that in the online world? Yeah, um, so it's it's varied. So biochemistry does have a lab component, and what's both good, I mean, kind of good, is that for biochemistry, it's this one semester long project, 
And um, our course is actually writing intensive because then they write up that semester long project. So the sort of good thing is that they had sort of finished like two thirds of the experimental part for the lab. So they actually could still write all of that up and they could still get the writing intensive aspect, et cetera. And so what we decided to do was we decided to provide them with sort of like dummy data, like data we've had, we collected from previous years and just said, pretend that this is your data for if you were able to continue on. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it did influence things. They weren't, they had started this project thinking they'd see it to completion and they weren't able to see their own project to completion. So that's, that's sad, but they can go through the motions of what it would be like to analyze the data and write up the data. Um, unfortunately, the very last part of the the lab course is always where they get to design their own experiment. Like we really encourage them to think of anything. And if we, we do our best to get all the reagents and equipment that they could possibly need to carry out this experiment. And that's just not something they're gonna be able to do. Um, and that's usually one of the funnest parts of it. So that, that was unfortunate. The other labs, um, everyone's kind of adjusting differently. Some people are making, some faculty are making videos of them doing the experiment. So the student can actually like see what it would have been like if they'd done it. Um, again, it's not the same as them doing it themselves, but they maybe have a better visual. Um, and then some labs have just stopped because it's just not really possible. So um, there are models out there of labs that are done online. So um, I feel like if we had more time to figure this out and not just, you know, spring break, we could, <laughs> we could make it happen. Um, I was once at a conference and I heard a talk by a microbiologist and she um, was doing an online microbiology class and she decided she wanted a lab. And so what her lab ended up being was that the students needed to make bread because a lot of the process of the fermentation and then causing the bread to rise, I mean, it's involving microorganisms and there's some biochemistry in there as well. So she actually thought it fit really well with her learning objectives and everyone theoretically could get some flour and um, some yeast and start rising bread. She did learn like, you know, um, access to ovens could not necessarily be assumed. So I think she made some additional tweaks, but I am already thinking like, if we aren't able to come back in the fall, like, is there something we could do along the lines? I mean, it'd have to be a completely new project. Is there something around like baking or like cooking, which all involves a lot of biochemistry that we could actually be using um, as our substitute lab? Biochemists um, and bakers, I like it. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. So one last question. Sure. Um, you know, you've touched on this a little bit before, but what kinds of things are your students going on to do? Mm -mm. Um, so trying to think, um, I mean, a lot of my students do go on to graduate school and they go on to medical school. Um, some students, they, they enter the workforce for a while. Um, I've had a couple of students who've more recently been more interested in data science um, or information science, this idea of like, how do we make sense of all these big data? So, I mean, they, they're going on to graduate programs for that. 
trying to think what else. Um, I had a student who went into consulting and is now working for, I think, a startup in Vietnam. So oh, wow. they're, they're all, they're kind of all over the place. Yeah. And then the graduate students, they also, they vary because some are going on to chemistry graduate schools. Some are doing more biology. Um, some do microbiology, some do biochemistry. Um, so there's been a big range there as well. So on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Okay. Um, we've been talking with Jane Liu, uh, Associate Professor of Chemistry. Thanks, Jane. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jane. And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.